When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Sports Edition. The right stuff. Yeah, yeah, I said it. The right stuff. That's what we're going to explore today. And I got with me, of course, my co host, Chuck Nice, Jack. Hey, Neil, what's happening? Stand-up comedian, and I got Gary O'Reilly. Hey, Neil. Nice to be here again. Okay, I have to tell in more than one of these episodes that we've got a cool wiki. There's a wiki page on you out there that I just <laughs> stumbled on, and, and you're looking good, I just want to say. All right, I must be breathing in. <laughs> Is that what it takes? It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, today's topic, the right stuff. Uh, you've generally heard that applied to astronauts, and in fact, we have a real live authentic astronaut on this show Ooh. because we want to explore what commonalities there might be for training to go into space and how that might impact the future of training for athletics. Just basically understanding what the human body is capable of. And who is that astronaut? But the one and only Scott Kelly. Scott, he's yes. an old friend. Scott, welcome, welcome to Star Talk. Thanks for having me, Neil. If you don't know who Scott Kelly is, he's one of a twin. And the one twin went into space, this twin, and the other twin stayed on Earth. Mm -hmm. And, and the other one went and the other one went to market. <laughs> to market. <laughs> also known as the US Senate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> very good. Very good. So you're retired, now retired uh, astronaut, engineer, naval aviator. I got the whole list here. You commanded the International Space Station and you recorded a full year in space. And that was consecutive, right? Not just in bits and pieces. Uh, and you, yeah. you wrote a book, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of discovery. Ooh. I like that. 
Mm. And let me name tag your brother. His name is Mark, Mark right. Kelly, and a current U.S. senator from Arizona, um, uh, uh, John McCain's uh, state, uh, Arizona. So John McCain's uh, old seat, seat actually. Right. Oh, his actual seat. His Excellent. actual seat. Yeah. Interesting. He's Excellent. actually sitting at John McCain's desk. desk yeah. Dang. <laughs> Pretty wild. <laughs> Is he drinking a beer that he had in the in the for fridge? <laughs> so Scott, how did you prepare on Earth to go into space? Well, there's a lot of uh, preparation. I think more you're focused on the physical part of it since this is, you know, how does this relate to, uh, to sports? Um, you know, we just keep active, keep healthy. The astronaut office uh, has a workout facility with really good uh, trainers to instruct us. Uh, they also teach us how to use all the exercise equipment, which uh, the, the equipment that we're going to use in space, which is pretty important because it's somewhat, uh, somewhat complicated and takes some good technique to use. Um, but, you know, mostly for spaceflight, what we're, you know, our pre-flight preparation with regard, you know, physical activity is more just about staying healthy and being able to do the job, you know, which means being in space for a long time and the stressors that puts on your body and also uh, to do spacewalks, which is a pretty challenging thing to do. So, yeah. so how, can you compare what we all saw in the movie, The Right Stuff, with whatever you might have gone through? Because the original Mercury 7 it looked like, no, I, I don't want to do, go through that. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. You know, with the centrifuge and the survival and this. And, and, and uh, so how, how soft are you compared with yeah. the original seven? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm a little older than they were when they, uh, they started. Not older than they are now, of course because that was uh, very much before my time. But, uh, you know, regarding the book, The Right Stuff, uh, the movie, you mentioned the movie, I, I think I maybe, maybe saw it once, really the right, the book was much more significant uh, part of my life, or really was what's inspired me to become a better student and uh, to go on and fly in the, in the Navy and then later at NASA. So yeah, the type of uh, stuff you saw in the movie and, and that's related well in the book, a lot of that stuff is the astronaut selection part, you know, some of the uncomfortableness of it. And yeah, we have to go through that, um, you know, the, the uh, different, uh, you know, exams you have to go through from, you know, just a very thorough, like, uh, you know, eye examination to make sure your vision's good, which in some ways is a little bit uncomfortable, believe it or not, all the way, you know, through your gastrointestinal system, you know, cardiovascularly, all that stuff. They test us for, uh, claustrophobia. Uh, and, and how do they do that? <laughs> they put you in a rubber bag, you know, you kind of crawl up into a ball, this like thick rubber bag uh, with a very hairy, heavy zipper. They put um, electrodes on you and push you into a closet and don't tell you how long you're going to be there. So okay, if you have I, claustrophobia. I want to scream just, right now. <laughs> just yeah. listening to just that. Just listening to that. I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like calling for help for some reason right now. Yeah. Like, and they told you uh, that was a test. That just sounds like a that just sounds like a bunch of bullies playing a prank on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's after they gave you the wedgie. Is that what actually happened there, yeah. Scott? <laughs> Well, you wouldn't want to have claustrophobia and get into a spacesuit no, uh, sure. <laughs> and figure it out when you're doing it, a spacewalk. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you're in low Earth orbit, it might be a little late to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, but guys, I can... 
Can, can we? Uh, can somebody get me down? Like, <laughs> I, I know several astronauts were were previous athletes, like Buzz Aldrin. I knew he was a track and field athlete. Even did the the pole vault, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So, did you do any sports when you were in college? I was a pole vaulter in uh, in high school. Uh, not a very good one. I was the captain of my swim team. I'm a decent swimmer, but I shouldn't have been the captain. It's just our team was so bad. Wait, wait, Scott, uh, you you won the pole vault contest because you ended up in space. <laughs> so you, eventually, you yeah. sailed over every height. <laughs> Everyone on the team, including my brother, who was also a pole vaulter. And the reason I sailed over him is because I went on one of those Hubble missions, which is much higher than he ever went. Oh, it's a higher the orbit than station. the space station. Yeah. That's right. That's right. By like, mm. uh, about 100 miles or so, I think. Uh, sibling yes. rivalry. <laughs> Scott, so, I'm, I'm, I'm interested because mm -hmm. going into space for a year, and we know, and I'll, I'll hold my hand up, astronauts are elite athletes. You've got amazing cognitive skills, high IQ and strength and conditioning that is as good as anything you find on an NFL field or anywhere else for that matter. Except for, but, cur except for curling. Oh, well, they're just chucked. Yeah. You've gone to the top of Mount Olympus there. <laughs> really? <laughs> but uh, we're, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Mason a little bit later on in this podcast. So, you know, stick around for that, please, all our listeners. He said to us that you said when you were in space, it felt like your bones were melting. And to back that up, the blood work and the urine samples proved that you were draining calcium. Now, we're all told about athletes who can feel and intuitively know their own body. How did you come to that conclusion? I never said that. Oh, busted. <laughs> that my bones were melting. And I doubt uh, very much that uh, Dr. Mason said that either. All right. Um, certainly, we lose a lot of bone mass in space, you know, 1% a month if you didn't do anything to prevent it. Uh -huh. uh, but we do. Fortunately, we do uh, a lot of exercise, resistive exercise specifically helps with that. And I did lose some bone mass. And, uh, you know, that does show up in, uh, in your urine samples. Our, bo our bodies are really smart. You know, we evolved in gravity. And once you get to space, your physiology recognizes there's no more gravity, no more need for a skeleton to support it. So it starts <laughs> getting rid of that stuff. So you're en route to just becoming a pile of, of ectoplasm up there? <laughs> Like Gumby. You're like Gumby, maybe. <laughs> so, this, this, so while all of this is going on in your body, in your bodies, is there a point like when pe people we speak to who go to on vegan diets say it takes a couple of weeks and then they kind of feel the whole thing working for them? Is it the same situation for a human body in space where you go over this bump in the road and after that you feel comfortable with things? You know, there's all different levels of uh, adaptation. Mm -hmm. You know, on a short-term flight on a on a space shuttle, uh, the the process really goes exists for you know it's like a few days where you might no longer be nauseous and you kind of feel you still don't feel great, but you feel good enough to do your job, and then you come home. On a long duration flight, I, I found the milestones to be more like you know one at about a month in space. And then where you can now kind of, you know, uh, move around very efficiently, you can think pretty clearly, you know, your head isn't as swollen as it is when you first get up there because, you know, our cardiovascular system, again, evolved to push blood against gravity. And without that, your head gets swollen. But I would say over the course of me being there for an entire year, I always 
felt better in every way, but I never felt like I was on earth. You know, I always felt that my head was a little swollen. My sinuses were a little congested because of that. Um, I always had, you know, like most of the time, a low grade headache because of the carbon dioxide. But, you know, I think maybe there is a, maybe there is a point out there, some kind of inflection point where if you stay in space long enough, you, uh, you know, you do feel like you're on earth perhaps. Mm. Or rather you feel like you're someplace else. And then when you go to earth, earth becomes completely weird, right? If you just completely physiologically (laughs) adapt to where you are, then earth becomes the weird, the, the outlier. Yeah, gravity can uh, give you a pretty good beatdown upon return. Yeah. So uh, speaking <laughs> of uh, the, the change uh, and adaptation, so I read that when you returned upon inspection, when they got under the hood to see what was going on with your DNA, that 7% of your DNA actually saw some change. Uh, now, it... I guess subsequently hasn't returned to its regular state or what happened with that, that 7%. And, and what exactly was the change that, that did we find out exactly what the change was? Yeah. Well, Chuck, we know well, that it, was, it didn't make him regrow hair. That was a change yeah. that did not happen. Ooh. That, right? <laughs> oh. Which is great. You know why? Because <laughs> this is like the perfect hair for space. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope to go back someday. <laughs> But actually, you know, what changed for me was uh, my DNA, but also RNA and protein. So what changed was 7% of my gene expression. Okay. And gene expression is whether these things, if you think of them as a switch, they're turned on and off or on or off. Um, And uh, that expression controls, you know, our physiology, how our bodies react to things, how how they behave. This would be a better question for Chris Mason, but in my case, 7% 7% of that changed over the course of the year. Now, granted, you know, all of us are probably changing a little bit all the time, but I think this was more, uh, more uh, interesting because it, how it uh, changed compared to my brother with him on earth, 7% of mine changed uh, relative to him, I think more so uh, over the course of that year. And then what is that? What is the implication? What are the implications of that um, for future space travelers? And also myself for my health going forward. And, you know, hopefully I'll never find out. Well, did they say that your, your chromosomes actually got longer? And to a, and here I am so, so advanced in my medical training. But that actually made you younger? So uh, what you're referring to is my telomeres. telomeres. Yeah. So these like yeah. end caps on our chromosomes. And as we age, you know, cells divide. Those get shorter and uh, more frayed. So... Your telomeres are really an indication of your physical age. And uh, the hypothesis was me being in space, all this radiation, the microgravity environment, the stress, the, you know, all these different factors would work together against my chromosomes to shorten them as compared to my brother. And surprisingly, we found out that they actually improved. Now, initially, we thought, well, maybe that's due to the exercise. We do a ton of exercise on board maybe the diet, which is, you know, different than a terrestrial diet. It's more controlled by dietitians. Maybe that was helpful. So that's what they actually thought at first. But then, I don't know, it was six months or a year after I got back from space, we learned that the Japanese had this experiment on telomeres on the space station at the same time I was there on these small worms. And their telomeres got better. 
And I never once saw those guys working out on the treadmill or the bicycle <laughs> or anything. So there's clearly more to this than meets the eye. Well, wait, wait, Scott, how many dangling variables were between you and Mark? So, for example, did they make Mark eat the same food you did? Did he exercise at the same times you did so that you have localized the effect of being in space as the only difference between the two of you? Or was he partying and drinking and... <laughs> yeah. So, as we, a scientist, we go, we go Neil, with the letter, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. As a scientist, Neil, we, I, I think uh, everyone realizes that, uh, including yourself, clearly that you know the way you would normally do a scientific experiment is to control a lot of these external factors and variables and focus on you know like the one thing you're trying to uh, investigate. So all things you know are basically equal. Right. We actually talked about maybe my brother following the same diet, maybe following the same. Uh, exercise protocol, but, you know, he had his own life. He traveled, he had to do work in di different parts of the country. It really wasn't practical. So, you know, it's a, an experiment that involves uh, some interesting information. It's more of a, you know, a, a, a longitudinal kind of experiment, you know, comparing me to my brother uh, over a long period of time and other astronauts and not something where you're looking at a very specific, controlled, very large uh, sample group as, you know, what you're comparing this, uh, me as the, you know, scientific uh, subject up to. Yeah, because if you did, if you were to do that perfectly, you would lock him into a vessel the size of your space station module for a year as, as well. I mean, so that there'd be, n the only difference is yeah. your zero G above Earth's atmosphere. That'd yeah. be the plastic I What's that, Gary? That would be the plastic bag scenario that <laughs> Scott went through for claustrophobia. <laughs> Lock him in the cupboard for a year. Okay, the one thing we get asked all the time, and Neil is brilliant with these sort of answers, is what if we did this sport on this planet, right? And I'm, I think we're talking to one of the few people who has come as close to anybody as doing sport off-world, even if it's exercise or two straws and a bead of water. Um, so it's, what did you think you could achieve in terms of sport whilst you're in space for a year? Hmm. Uh, you know, I think you would have to design a sport specifically for microgravity. It yep. would be hard to translate, you know, sports that are conducted under gravity, uh, to microgravity and have them work the same way. Certainly, you know, we try things in space for fun. I had a football up there and one time, it took me a few months, but I was able to throw it from the front of the space station, node two, all the way into the service module of the Russian segment, which is probably, I don't know, like maybe several hundred feet away. And there was about that much space to, to get it through. It took me months. Um, but as far as, I, I don't know, maybe you could have wrestling. That would be pretty interesting. Neil, you're in. <laughs> wrestling in space. <laughs> I don't know how you would pin somebody, though. Yeah, so I think you're right. You have to sort of start from scratch and say, yeah. what are some zero-G athletic feats that we would... Mm -hmm. Because, you know, faster, higher, stronger, whatever is the Olympic motto, um, they'd have to even adjust that, adjust it. Because strength, I don't know, takes on a different meaning in space because any force will send something into motion. Mm. And... Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so maybe that's a, that, that's a book you, I think you should write. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, though. I think the, 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 the thing that would be competitive 
would be how you're able to very precisely maneuver your body around in zero gravity. Because, you know, over the course, the longer you're there, the better you get at it. And that's really a skill to learn. So Mm. there could Mm -hmm. be certain things like, you know, um, just being able to, you know, do like a, a flip in in the middle of the module and see who can do it the longest without actually hitting anything. That would be <laughs> time that, and that would be a good competition. Without Space. accidentally hitting the, the red eject button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Space gymnastics. Space down. gymnastics, because everything yeah, they yeah. do on the, the floor exercises and things, you just do in space, and you don't yeah. even have to touch back down. That I like that. Wow. I, and, and how about synchronized swimming? If they had some... Swimming pool, there was just a big blob of water. Yeah. And you sort of enter the blob of water, and then you can have cameras from all directions. That'd be interesting, yeah. too. You'd probably drown. short competition. We've spoken a lot about the physical version of you. How about the mental version of you? Because I'm told that you took a gorilla suit into space. Is, is that another? Is that another? You did. I'm being told a whole load of fibs. Now my brother sent me a gorilla suit, but I did oh. not take it. I actually oh. said, "Why are you sending me a gorilla suit?" And he said, "Well, there's never been a gorilla suit in space, so I'm sending you one, <laughs> and you have no control over it." <laughs> so then you got to take been, a blurry photo yeah. of you, and then it would be like Bigfoot is in space. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? I'm. These stories are getting lost in translation. Oh, who it's are strange. You, who are you? Ta- are you talking to the National Enquirer, Gary? Is that- <laughs> I, Gary. I cannot divulge my sources. You know the rules on this, Chuck. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so well, guys, we got we got to take this break. But uh, uh, Scott Kelly's book is a year in space, a lifetime of discovery. Definitely check it out. And when we come back, we're going to introduce Christopher Mason. He's the medical doctor who conducted the experiments on Scott while he was in space for a year. And it's his test that gives us this glimpse into the effect of human spaceflight on human genetics. So stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. PXG Black Ops Driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops Drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. pxg.com slash startalk. Code startalk. We're back, Star Talk Sports Edition. Building the right stuff. We just came out of a segment with one of the Kelly twins who's been in space for a year, and we found out that a lot of medical experiments were conducted trying to find out how his body compared with his twin, Mark, who he left here on Earth. And we've got right now the doctor who analyzed him, Dr. Christopher Mason. Chris, welcome to Star Talk. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, let me get your 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 title straight here. Associate Professor and Director of the World Quant Initiative for Quantitative Prediction. Did I get that right? That's right. It's all there. Yep. And and you uh, and you specialize in physiology and biophysics, one of my favorite fields. If I were not an astrophysicist, I'd be a biophysicist. So I'm totally with you on that. And yeah. what is the the file family of brain and mind institute? What is that? Basically looking at cognitive traits uh, in general for when you do large-scale studies, including like with astronauts, but then also looking for genes that are responsible for how the brain develops or responds to stress. Okay, uh, So cool. looking at diseases that run in families, yeah. yeah. Okay, very interesting. And uh, also the Institute for Computational Biomedicine at the Weill Cornell, um, uh, at Weill Cornell Hospital? Or, medicine, uh, yeah. Medicine, okay. Excellent. You're the right guy for this. 
I'm just, oh, by the just way, a we curious have to, geneticist. Just a guy. We have to yeah, let people a... know that uh, you came 15 minutes late to this interview because you were, like, <laughs> talking to the CDC. And there's no excuse. Yeah. There's, there's, who, who who raised you, all right? Where are your manners here? <laughs> okay. Just a few, few mutated viruses floating around the population. A few it's mutated a little, COVID little viruses, that's not an excuse. <laughs> that's right. All right. Um, so, your, your, um, the words associated with your profession. I got one here, epitranscriptome. Uh, meg, metagenome, transcriptome, epigenome. What is, what is all that? Bio aqua doodle alpha disco <laughs> psycho beta. Uh, <laughs> that was an old timer joke right there, Chuck. Oh, man. Just got to love some Parliament Funkadelic. Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> so, Chris, what is, what is all that? Uh, happy to clarify. So it is uh, every layer of biology being studied sort of in its totality. So you think about, you probably everyone probably remembers DNA and RNA and protein, kind of this idea of the central dogma of molecular biology, what happens in your cells and how do you go from, you know, one cell when you're an embryo. Everyone here started as one cell, or at least you should have. If you didn't, please tell me later. We should do some experiments <laughs> on you. But you should have been one cell when you started. And all the instructions are there to become all the other cells in your body, which is one of the most beautiful things of genetics. And But to make that happen, you need to control the DNA, the RNA, the protein at every stage of development, and also when you go to space, for example. So the ohms, the genome is the DNA, the transcriptome is the RNA, the proteome is the proteins, and all the ohms in between are the totality of studying how those molecules interact in the body. Okay, but the wow. epigenome is, is something that happens later, correct? It's yeah, not or, what's something that's sort of you're born with? What's going on there? The epi is Greek for on top of. So you still have your genome. You know, it's only a four-letter alphabet that comprises the entire genetic code for all of life, actually. There's, but then on top of that, so epigenome, right on top of that, are small chemical tweaks that change how and when and where something gets used. And so it, you can package DNA and like make it so it's inaccessible and turn things off, or you can slightly sprinkle kind of like snow these epigenetic marks that turn them on and turn them off. So these epigenetic marks, uh, it, is it true? Or do you know, or has enough been done to study if indeed trauma over a period of time leads to a change in genetics down the line? So for Ooh. instance, let's just say mm -hmm. I'm a survivor of, um, you know, uh, homelessness, right? When I'm a little kid and mm -hmm. I go through this terrible trauma. Uh, and then I give birth to somebody, or better yet, my mom it goes homeless while she's carrying me, mm -hmm. all right? So take those two scenarios. One, my mom is homeless, suffers that trauma, and then two, I am homeless, suffering the trauma. So one, I'm fathering a child, one, I'm giving birth to a child. Will it have indeed an effect? An epigenetic, a transgenerational effect. A transgenerational uh, effect. effect. So this is a big question. Uh, it's, it's hotly debated in the field of genetics and epigenetics. We know in mice, the answer is definitely yes. And in what? worms, the answer is definitely yes. We can see evidence of multi-generational impacts where the genetic code is the same. It's what's called an isogenic line. It's like a mouse line that is, they're all the same genetic background. There's no change in the genetics. It's only the epigenetics. And you can, you can see it. You can see those small chemical tweaks in mice where essentially if you've been Lean, you might have a better chance of being lean as a mouse later in generations or obese as well. You can switch it up. 
And in, and in C. elegans, there's even a case where work by Odette Travi showed worms that are, have an antiviral response can pass on for up to three generations, but then it slowly fades away. So we know it's possible biologically, but in humans, it's hotly debated. The best example is that in World War II, a lot of the mothers that were uh, that were famished because of a lot of restrictions because they didn't have enough food. food. There were a lot of downstream health uh, effects negative because of that. And so there's there's epidemiological evidence, but it's hard to do the same experiment in humans mm. that you do with with mice. You can't force humans to have children with who you want to. Uh, I mean, you can kind of do it with an app these days, but it's it's um, you can't do it in a controlled fashion. The old Tinder <laughs> control group. <laughs> you can kind of get closer, but you still can't. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> so so what, one thing you just blew past, and I just want to make sure we like pause and reflect on that amazing fact, that in the world of experimental you know, physiology, there are catalogs where you can order up any number of identical mice. Oh yeah, that someone else had experimented on in some had other made. country at another time, that found some effect. So you can get that strain of mice and its identical DNA to that other mouse, so that now you can look for the sole oh, variable whoa. to change. Wait a minute, are you saying that they they keep that that line that yes. leads going? I'm, 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 that's why I, I, he yeah. just blew by it like everybody knows this. Like it's no big oh, deal. My. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's the genetics. ideal experimental. Um, lab animal is a, oh is it? Yeah. That's so, so did I get it right? Did I get that right, Chris? That, that's spot on. And you can get ones with specific mutations, one that, you know, age faster, like progeria, or ones that have a higher propensity for diabetes or obesity or cancer. Uh, you can make almost any kind of mouse you want these days. So now, how do you guys do this? Do you have like a little mouse brothel that you just... <laughs> Chuck! What do you, what do you, you guys... You Damn, Chuck! Bunch of, you guys a bunch of mouse pimps? What is going on? What is happening? <laughs> Behave. What it, what, it, what it does is makes Scott Kelly going to space with his genetically identical twin brother on Earth, even more fantastic. That's why Dr. Mason was the ideal person to study this stuff. Thank so you. Here we have, okay, so we don't have yes. whole colonies of identical Mark Kellys, but we had two, all right, right. brought to you by his, their mothers, their, their mother. So what, did, what were you looking for specifically? Did you know what questions you wanted to answer before it all began, or were you just going to sort of do a scatter, uh, a scatter experiment and see whatever shows up? We had some hypotheses going in, but for the most part, we weren't sure, and, and NASA wasn't sure, nobody was sure, what would be the a facet of biology that would change the most? Is it the DNA? Is it the RNA? Is it the protein? Is it the microbiome, like the microorganisms in your body? Uh, you know, is there, there's eye and retinal damage that's been studied before. So, But we had no idea. So I think the best thing to do when you don't know where to look is to look everywhere you possibly can. So in this case, we, we put, basically took the whole kitchen sink of molecular biology and, and biophysics and examined everything we could about everything that was going in their body and out of their body and, and some parts in, uh, on their body as well, like the microbiome. And so this, uh, so we sequenced their genome, the genome of what was in their stool. So we got um, some space poop and also some space skin samples to see what bacteria were changing and viruses. Because there's often herpes that gets reactivated in a lot of astronauts and about 40% of them. Uh, herpes gets, you know, the immune system's a bit suppressed and so herpes comes back. Reactivated, that means they had it yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you know, love talking, eating, wait a minute. Her are we talking forever. space herpes here? <laughs> we are, are we actually talking space herpes? I, I, I know it's early in the day, but we're already there. That's right. That's right. This interview just began, dude. <laughs> 
But, but okay, but wait a minute. Just you again. You just blew by something. I just got to like <laughs> pause you for a moment. So you not only concern yourself with the health and well-being of Scott Kelly, you also concerned yourself with the health and well-being of the bacterial stowaways that are in mm-hmm. his gut and are on his skin. Yeah, yeah, and, and saliva too. Exactly. I mean, basically, because biology is driven by human cells and microbial cells. Right. To be a good geneticist, you have to look at all kingdoms of life for every patient. So now, oh man, that makes for okay. First of all, how do you handle all this data? I mean, seriously, just just this one person in space, the tranche of data that comes back to you has got to be overwhelming. It's got to be huge, a tidal wave of of just bits and bytes. So, and and then you start talking about the microbial uh, 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 aspect of this. Mm-hmm. You're looking at a whole other universe inside of a human being that you're. That you're that you're quantifying, measuring at the same time. How do how do you, how do you even do that? It, well, lots of sequencers. So it, I mean, a lot of it's petabytes of data. It is. Uh, I mean, we have a, a bio a laboratory. Most laboratories these days, mine included, it's it's biology, it's genetics. But about 70 percent of it is a dry lab. So it's all computational. Uh, just people who just do programming, just do informatics. The other third of it is more the wet lab, and so the lab becomes kind of half wet, half dry, like a humidor. Uh, or like an armpit. It depends on what day it feels like it is, but um, a little bit half wet, half dry. So it I has did not to be... need to hear that about an armpit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, one other thing. I just got to make sure we're on the same page. All right. Yes. You just went right through petabyte. So that's the next metric group of a thousand that follows gigabyte. So we have... Uh, terabyte. Terabyte. Sorry, terabyte. So gigabyte, terabyte, and then petabyte. So thank you. So this is way more data than even you ever be storing on your computer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Most so Chris, Chris, how are you reacting to data in real time? Or is it a case of, we'll deal with that when you get back? Can, I mean, uh, is there, my, I mean I'm, I'm getting my facts so wrong on this show. It's Actually, I'm going to break records, I'm sure. Um, is there a mini sequencer on the International Space Station? Or have I dreamt that? There is, there is. So a lot of the, when we sequence all the molecules, the DNA and the RNA, and you can even track these proteins with the, with the sequencers too, uh, normally, these really big machines, these giant machines made mm-hmm. by like Illumina or PacBio or some of the bigger companies in the space, and their machines are big. Uh, but there's smaller ones made by a company called Oxford Nanopore out of the UK that makes they're just literally the size of something you'd say half the size of your phone or you know even the size of your phone. They are, and you can do sequencing in space. We demonstrated this with Kate Rubens, who's up in the space station right now, and I was just emailing with her yesterday. Uh, she has the small. She did it for the first time in 2016, and now it is a standard flight hardware. You can sequence anything you want right up in space right away. Oh my god, that's so Gattaca, dude. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so Gattaca. It's happening in real time. You can so you could kiss someone quickly, swab your mouth, and then sequence it and see. Do I want to date this person anymore? It's like 23 and Me and Tinder coming together. It's finally happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's cool. So Gattaca okay. was a movie reference for those who are. Uh, younger than 40. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and by the way, if you haven't seen Gattaca, get a life. It's a good movie. Yeah, it's, it's an important movie. film. It's a, good, I, it's a great film. And in it, fact, it, the, it, the letters in the title of the movie are your A-C-G-T, amino acid yeah, letters. Yeah, that, that's your, yeah. Gattaca. So G-A. now, so, so, so can, can I just ask about this microbial? Because I'm just, when you think about the human gut and the fact that most of us, I mean, most of our insides is not us. <laughs> right? Right, right, right? If you think about it, most of our insides is not us. So did you find anything that might either enhance our ability for long-term space travel or 
detract from our ability for long-term space travel. Well, that's what I was, I, I was thinking of Gary's question. What were you monitoring in real time? Like, if you knew Scott Kelly was, like, dying from something, do you say, oh, we're not going to tell him we need the data? Say, <laughs> so just take this. Don't ask why. Just, just yes, take don't this. Don't ask yeah. why. <laughs> Uh, we, we we can see because uh, the a lot of the biochemistry of the microbes contributes to our own biology and sort of vitamin levels, for example, vitamin B three and B six. A lot of this made by the microbes in your gut, so you can see is the composition changing in a way that's negative. But also, some of the microbes make something called arachidonic acid, which has some radioprotective capabilities as well. So there's some ongoing questions of could you protect astronauts or at least give them good nutrition, but maybe give them even a little bit of radio protection. Uh, both inside and out, it is ongoing right. research uh, at NASA and in our lab, yeah. When you say radio protection, you mean uh, radiation from space, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, galactic comic cosmic rays will still kind of blow right through you, but if you think about yeah. lower radiation or, or sort of secondary radiation, Got it on. might help you with that, yeah. Just clarifying so, that. Wow. Hey, so let me ask you this, Neil. How do you deal with, like, you know, the barrage of radiation that you will experience uh, once you are... You know, you're, there's no magnetic field. There's no. What do you okay, What the, do you do? The, the urge to try to find a biological solution to this, I think, will end up futile relative to what engineers can design. And yeah. so, it doesn't take much thickness of water, for example, yeah. to completely shield you from most of what's damaging yeah, from the sun. So right. you can imagine enveloping this the spacecraft. In a some suit, kind of, uh, it's just a a, a membrane. Yeah, right? some mm -hmm. kind of fluid mm -hmm. membrane, and that yeah. could be some of the recycled water that you use. So I'm not worried about that. Everyone says, oh, what about the radiation? I'm, we got clever engineers. That's mm -hmm. the least of my worries. Okay. Right, uh, and that here. makes sense. So but Chris, what was the most interesting set of results you got? Uh, maybe the most disturbing, but the same breath. But um, And the lessons we've actually picked up from Scott's year in space. Mm-hmm. And and where are you hiding the Andromeda string? <laughs> <laughs> it's in the freezer. It's I mean, oh wait, no, I mean it's uh, another it's movie. Right. Like, right. You got to be over um, fifty to know that movie. Right. Okay. Uh, That's right. So so the, I think it was really surprising to see actually how plastic the body was. Many many things changed you know, that were stress responses in flight. But and even mm -hmm. when he landed, he really his whole body broke out into a rash. It went, his ankles swelled up to the size of basketballs. But it went back to normal. So a lot of the body did return to normal. But he did, we did see increased damage to his DNA. So we know that he did get radiated. So it's something to keep an eye on. Telomeres got a little bit longer, we could see, which was surprising. And one other thing that was really surprising is we could see his immune system. We could see which bacteria it was actually engaging with because we've also sequenced the walls of the space station. So we can see the bacteria that he's, his body's in there engaging with and the immune cells. You can actually see uh, them, the T cells in his body becoming more active towards those specific microbes. That was kind of a really interesting result too. Okay, so it means you could not up front disentangle the effects of zero G versus a slightly lower pressurized environment versus the ra the radiative exposure that he's getting. All of those are happening together. Because when I think of microbes, do they really care how much gravity there is? Like, mm. they live in a whole other world where sort of the, you know, uh, other forces dominate what role gravity would play. So I, I, it sounds like most of what you're finding has nothing to do with zero G. Yeah, we think it's a lot of it's the, the stress on the body. Sometimes you get local hypoxia just because there's small clouds of CO2 because air doesn't move the same way in space as it does here on Earth. Essentially, the clouds can stay a little bit in front of your face. You can uh -huh. see some of that in the blood work even. And so we think you see that, you see the, you know, essentially the radiation, the stress of the flight. Yeah, so you're not going to carry a fan with you wherever you go. Yeah, oh, there's a lot of fans <laughs> in the space station to make sure the air moves. For that, yeah, for that circulation. Wow. So, so Scott's in space for a year. That's not the record, is it? No, the Russians well, have a speech, like with many things. They, they, they okay, well, 
That's that's why it's called. Well, a that's because they punished somebody to put them up there. That's <laughs> <laughs> no. What happened was, yeah, they were like Russia's beat. Russia's just beat us in everything in space. First, first satellite, first non-human animal, first human, first woman, first black person. Right? They had everything, and then we landed on the moon. We say we win. <laughs> so, having said that, we will need to do experiments as you did with Scott for even longer periods of time. Not in terms of the length of time, possibly, because what is it, nine months to get to Mars, the projection? Yeah, six to seven I mean, months, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what sort of tests can you conduct? What sort of time can a human exist in space at this particular point in our technological evolution? Well, we think there are missions planned now for doing 18 months, and there's going to be a, a barrage of six and 12 month additional missions to follow up on the twin study. So uh, by the time we send people to Mars, you know, if you ask NASA, it's 2035. If you ask Elon Musk, it's, you know, 2026 or something. So, uh, but sometimes you it's never. Someone yeah, right. me. Okay. Uh, you, know, you don't think we're going to go? You think never? Uh, that's a whole other thing. I'm not, right, uh, okay, don't, okay. don't, don't get me started. <laughs> Actually, you wrote a whole book on thinking about humans and the future, the next 500 yeah. years. Why don't we take a break and we'll yeah. come back and just explore where that book goes and why and what you found and what your insights are as a medical professional. We'll be right back on Star Talk. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. Tubi, it's more popular than being French. See you in there. Do you want to set up your child for success? Of course you do. Maybe you want to save money on private tutoring, or maybe it's just out of your budget altogether. Is this a big school year for your child? Like maybe they're starting kindergarten, middle school, or high school, or some other milestone. Maybe your family moved and they're starting at a new school. Is your child ahead? Not getting challenged enough in class? Well, we love that little smarty, but we want them to be engaged. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can use it at home on the computer or on the go through the app on your phone or your tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything itself. And no more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Star Talk Radio listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Star Talk. Visit IXL.com slash Star Talk to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. 
but there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, it's time to acknowledge our Patreon patrons, Jamie Ferns, Evan Stegel, and Peyton Hawk. Thank you so much, guys. Without you, we couldn't make this trek across the cosmos. And for anybody else who would like their very own Patreon shout-out, please go to patreon.com slash startalkradio and support us. We're back, Star Talk Sports Edition. We let off with Scott Kelly, one of the twins who went into space and got studied by our current guest. We've got Dr. Mason here, who's who's an expert on the human genome and the human mm-hmm. physiology and biophysics. Mm-hmm. And he's the right guy in the right place doing the right thing. So again, thanks uh, for being on our show. Thanks, for having um, So uh, let me ask you, did uh, what is there anything we learned that we can apply to the rest of us, even if we're not going into space, from what you studied with uh, Mark Kelly's uh, physiology? Yeah, yeah, I think because we, you know, we studied, we brought And, and, and whole, let me be specific. Yeah. Do you think we can know about pandemics or any, you know, yeah. I got to sort of throw that in the mix. Viruses? Yeah, there, or, or physiology or any response to stress, for example. So what's amazing is we, uh, about a year ago, you know, we started getting a lot of samples from uh, the hospital, uh, New York Presbyterian, the COVID-19 patients coming in. We started sequencing them, applying some of the exact same uh, molecular technologies that we did to the Kelly twins and other astronauts. And we could actually see, for example, some things that look just like, uh, like that look like the stress of landing back from space, like interleukin-6 is a, a, a basically a, a cytokine, an inflammatory signaling molecule that really spiked up when he landed. So when he landed back on Earth, it looked like his body basically was saying, oh, crap, you know, I'm, I'm breaking on rashes, I'm in a lot of pain. And it was because you could see these cytokines, these pro and anti-inflammatory sig- signals and molecules battling each other. Wait, and this IL-6, is not because he had landing anxiety, it's because the body was beginning to feel gravity once again. Exactly, exactly. And so getting back to 1G, the body releases all these signals that are kind of an alarm bell to say, okay, we need to begin to use our muscles, re- rebuild our bones. Even though they work out on the space station and try to prevent as much of that as possible, it still is different. When you come back to a full 1G on your whole body uh, the whole time, it, it hurts a little bit. And we could see some of those same signatures show up in COVID patients. So what's interesting is we published wow. a paper last year saying, what's the list of possible medications that you could use when you land on gravity after you haven't been in gravity? A lot of them overlap with what are now being used for therapies for COVID-19, which you know we couldn't have predicted oh. a year ago, but and now we can see it. And then even the sequencer we use, little tiny sequencer we've used in space, it gives you sequence data, you know, within minutes. We now sequence uh, coronaviruses on that same machine. Wow. Super okay, cool. you know, this is this sounds like some badass stuff. And we, we introduced you as associate professor. Why aren't you full professor? Oh, I oh, the thanks for the lead. I just got promoted. Uh, just <laughs> okay. so it just just now full professor. Because <laughs> if, if, if while Cornell didn't promote you, we would. Okay, <laughs> you are now knighted full professor. <laughs> thanks, thanks, keep thanks, this thanks. going. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for Congrats. those who are un- unfamiliar with academia, full professor is really simply it, you have a higher salary, but <laughs> everything, it's, all the other expectations are the same of you to keep stay badass because uh, yeah, you've already had tenure. So that yes, wasn't the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, the threshold so, here. So when you're looking at Scott and you're looking at his physiology, uh, is there something that we can take away from that for like 
uh, our daily exercise routines and things like that. Like I read somewhere that running, for instance, helps increase bone density. Like the pounding actually does something to tell your brain to strengthen your bones. Is there anything that we can take like that from your studies? From from these we've seen uh, when they run in space, there's actually you know they have to wear bungee cords to keep themselves down. But that 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 that, that hammering on your knees and it tells your bones to really uh, you know maintain this this homeostasis. And there's also something called hormesis, which means when you kind of push yourself a little bit, if you ever lift weights a little bit and you push yourself hard, you're kind of sore that next day. But it's a good sore. And so we've seen some of that. You need to actually push yourself a little bit, a little bit more if you can. Not every time you work out and uh, break a record every time, but it helps to do so now and again. And it's because it helps stimulate the body that way. So you know, pushing yourself a little bit is one simple thing they do actually with some of the exercise regimens in space. And also, and they're uh, monitoring the body. You can actually see we could, you know, Scott. I don't, you know, when he talked about in his book that if he didn't work out every day, he could almost feel like his bones were dissolving which is awful to think about. But then as amazing as in the urine data, we could see the calcium coming out of his body. So he wasn't imagining it, it was actually happening. And if you don't have that, you know, consistent activation of your body's rebuilding, you know, you, you'll atrophy, your bones will slowly go away. Now, Chris, I have to just correct something you said. You said that the bungee cords keep them down, but in space there oh, is no, no down. There's no down. Keep I'm just, them, I'm just, I'm just, I just got to keep you honest on. here. Just because you're not full professor doesn't mean... Okay. There's no down in space. That's right. Okay, so it keeps you pulled towards the running machine, wherever yes, yeah. that running machine is. So there, okay, there so go. Scott's got a book out, yeah. uh, A Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery, but your book, Professor, mm-hmm. The Next 500 Years... Um, Hmm, interesting. Because if wait, we wait, can back- we say that with some drama, please? The next 500 years. Give me dun, some dun, dun, dun. emotion in that. My gosh. Uh, a spectacular read coming <laughs> to you very shortly is the next <laughs> 500 years. All right. <laughs> By Professor Mason. So, what, right, so what are you, you going to ask him? All right. So, if we go back 500 years, mm-hmm. the, the discoverer, Ferdinand Magellan, discovers Guam. Now, that's ancient. That's like, sailing ships and weird, in 100 years, 500 years' time, are we going to be looking back at your work now, which is so exciting, and think, eh, that's ancient, that's boring, well, look how that's quaint. Yeah, look yeah. at yeah. what they all Oh, look yeah. at that. That's my second grade homework. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, how are people going to view this? And Where is... 500 years, what can we do? How can we, there's a lot, there's a million questions to And why unravel. do you think you know what happened in 500 years? Yeah. I, I have, it's, it's, a, it's a treatise of hope, I guess, if you will. I put it together oh, as nice. uh, what I think humanity can do and also should do and that we have a duty to do. So when you think of duty, most people immediately get sleepy. You think of a well, duty to what, to like feed my cats, a duty to maybe your spouse, maybe to your country, uh, so maybe it's patriotic, but you hopefully have a duty to your uh, kids. Uh, but even that is not guaranteed, right? Some people just completely forego that duty. But there is one duty that we have as humans that as soon as you understand it is actually something you can uh, control and that you can have influence on the universe is just being aware of extinction. We're the only species that we know of that is aware of extinction. So then we have a duty to prevent it, not only our own, but also any other species and life form that we come across. So we have kind of a duty to the universe that is actualized at the moment you realize that you understand what extinction is. And wait, wait, do you have a duty to a species that would go extinct without us? Because if, if, the, the tree yes. of life is 
there's no end of extinction on yep, it. Yep. It has nothing to do with us. And the fact right. that the dinosaurs went extinct pried open an ecological niche that allowed us to rise up. So right. who are you to pass judgment on what life form should or should not go extinct if we have nothing to do with that extinction? I, it, it's even independent of whether we cause it or not. It's just that life... So it, it, I, I start from the premise that, that life and actually self-aware life, that is life that is aware of extinction, is unique in the universe. And, and any other life that doesn't have it doesn't have this duty. So even extinct life, even if we didn't cause it, you can bring it back, but you have to do it carefully because what if you bring it back? If you bring back dinosaurs, they probably would rampage through eat and us. eat a lot of us. Right? Us. So, so that's you, not God. necessarily advice. So, you know, I think we just start yeah. on an island, a small island. So what could go wrong, right? You know, it's Jurassic think, uh, Park, yeah. Right, yeah. right. So what, what could go wrong? No, but it, but it conceptually is there, there are species we've clearly caused their extinction. And I think we have a moral duty to try and even bring them back, especially there's with genetic technologies, we can do so. Some of those same technologies allow us to make immunotherapies where you can engineer your T cells to go after cancer cells very exquisitely. Uh, so this idea of, of genome engineering and cellular engineering is already deployed in clinical trials around the world. And some of that same technology lets us uh, be sort of the, the safe guardians and shepherds of life and maybe even bring it back. But that is, uh, we're in no hurry to do that. That would be very slow. I'd like, that's a very, I like that. So you're, you're not some sci-fi guy thinking what new contraption we're going to have or what new spaceship. You're thinking of our duty to ourselves, to our civilization, and to the planet and our ecosystem. I think that's a yeah. noble cause. So yeah. in 500 years, if all goes as you want, what, what, do we, what does it all look like? So hopefully we would end up uh, to Mars eventually, which is the first step on a stairwell towards preservation. Because like every moral question becomes immediately clear when you put it out to a billion years. That's when the sun gets big enough to start to heat the Earth, and it's really going to be really hard to live here. If you go out five billion years, the sun's probably going to be at the surface of the uh, of the Earth, like they're going to be touching and kissing. So no matter what we do, if we achieve perfect pieces of species uh, and perfect technological bliss, if we're still physically here, uh, you know, really even in a billion years, then that's it for us. And so I, I think we're worth preserving. And that means eventually we have to start going. So we have to start to go to the moon, to Mars. I think by 400 years from now, we might be able to get to have some people in Titan. And at the end of the book, at 500 years, I say we might have enough knowledge and understanding of physiology to be able to send people on a, what's called a generation ship, where people live and die for multiple generations on their way towards a new star. So in the book, are I play, you inclu you're including in this genetic modifications to us in the needed. service of this longevity and this uh, insight? Because I think we might need to. The other option, if you send humans to a planet that they've not evolved on, it's like, just say, good luck, and hopefully you survive. But if you have uh, biochemical and genetic capacity to protect people, and we don't use it, that would be actually be more unethical. So we could actually protect you from, uh, assuming it works and it's safe, of course, which we have to prove. Wait, so but, ethics is a big part of this book. So what about the ethics of sending a group of fertile people into space who then give birth to a next generation, a generational ship, and that generation is, stuck. is born only ever knowing that their job is to have another generation so that some generation down the line gets to land at get the gets the prize and so isn't that a form of, of prison uh, prison or slavery uh, you know what i'm going to call that a, a form of early civilization here on earth yep. because yeah. honestly that's all earth earlier civilization on earth was, was. Huh? that's all earth? it ever was it's yeah. here we are on this rock spinning. And I'm around. gonna have some babies in this new right. place. And, and the whole thing here. is That's have right. some babies. We're stuck here. We gotta have more babies so that we can stay here. <laughs> and now here we are where we are. You know, eight, eight billion of us. Damn, but oh, but right. human evolution has been migration, exactly. whether it's been north, south, east, west, mainly east, west, because of temperate zones and all the rest of it. So the once we've kind of got to a point on this planet, the migration to another seems to be just another development of our humans being human. 
Yeah, and I mean, but, at the uh, moment, we've got Russia and China joining forces to go and build some sort of bases on the moon or around the moon. I mean, are we looking at this, Chris, as... Because of the, think of this problem Scott experienced coming back after a year in space physically. Would we use things like moon bases, call them that, as stepping stones back into 1G rather than just come straight back to Earth? Absolutely. It'd probably be easier. I mean, that's one-sixth gravity there, and you know, Mars is you know, uh, 38% gravity, so hopefully these would give you a little stepping stone so it wouldn't be as bad. But then you know, eventually, you know, think about people who just live you know, think about what happened. You know, the Australians when they left England, they they got a different accent, they get a different culture. You get, you know, on a different planet, you get different physiology as well. So we would expect them to become different. Plus, the deer in Australia have pouches. So I'm hopeful. You know, I think well, the great thing about the book, uh, I guess, at the end is that we've discovered all the new genes that we didn't know existed even 20 years ago, and we've discovered all these planets, exoplanets that we didn't even know 25 years ago. So I call them twin engines of discovery because now we know what genes we can use to understand them and keep us safe potentially, and we know which planets we could eventually go to. So I hope 500 years from now we would pick the best one or several, and then send people there, and, and maybe we'd get some interesting you know, sitcoms that get broadcast from this other new planet, potentially. I think it's, it's brilliant to have this addition to the futurist's portfolio, because it's usually some technologist, it's some fantasy writer, it's, it's somebody imagining a future, and you're coming at it physiologically. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a brilliant construct for a book, and uh, we'll look for it on the bestseller list if it's not already there. Yeah. Because that's totally what we should all be thinking about. Rather than just the next two years or the next four years for an election, is anyone thinking about the next century? Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this. How do you feel? This is not related to anything that we're talking about. I'm just interested in your opinion on the project to take 500 fertilized eggs and put them on the moon uh, the same way we did with seeds mm-hmm. in wherever we put the seeds. What was it? Well, you was mean it to, to store them on the moon? To store them on the moon. Seed vault. So yeah, that, yeah. Uh, basically like a seed vault, but for humankind. Um, it would be, they'd have to be really well maintained up there. I guess, you know, tardigrades fell on the moon when the Israeli spacecraft crashed on there a year and a half ago. So, and I think those have all been probably irradiated and, and not useful. But I think if they were buried deep and came well, they're irradiated and now they're large. <laughs> <laughs> and they're floating. You didn't see the right moon. movies, Chris. When you get radiated, you become <laughs> big. Okay, <laughs> duh. And green, sometimes green. And green, yeah, thank you, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, uh, so... I mean, I think it's, uh, I think preserving, you know, we can actually embed a lot of the genomes now in a digital code, right? So this is being done on something called the Genome Arc Project, sequencing as many genomes on the earth as possible as kind of a reservoir of human and biological diversity of everything we know on earth. And so I think you can put it in digital form. That might be simpler in the short. Interesting. Good point, because Chuck, uh, I can write a book on engines and store the book. I don't have to store the engine. Right. Okay. You can yeah. read the book, the information about the engine, and then rebuild the engine. So that's uh, so uh, we gotta we gotta land this plane at some point. Wow. And, uh, I don't. Mm. So Chris, let me let me take us out with this final question to you. Sure. Sure. Um, what have you genetically engineered in your basement? We won't tell oh. anyone. Just, what do you have? Just, <laughs> so, sh- sh- you can whisper it. Okay. We, we won't tell anybody. Just a couple of things. Um, it's, <laughs> just, it's just, he's got an a couple, answer, just a couple of things. <laughs> just a couple we've, of things. 
We've got a butterfly that tastes like barbecue sauce. Uh, we've got, uh, we do have one thing in the lab that's true, though, is we took genes from tardigrades that can resist radiation and put them into human cells. And now they have 80% more resistant to radiation. So uh, that is something we have done with tardigrades. Mm. And now you can actually, you know, take some of these immune function genes and also put them in cells. So we're, we're working Wait, so on... So it means you can go repair Chernobyl. <laughs> yeah, potentially. I mean, I think in, any gene we see from any species on this planet or others can be essentially uh, part of the genetic toolbox of surviving long-term. Right, because nature already gave it to you. You're just rearranging yeah. them. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Very cool. But safely and carefully oh. and in one space and not releasing to the world. Yes, yes. To be well, uh, Chris, good luck with the book. It's a fascinating Thanks. topic and I think is an underserved topic. And you're the, clearly the right person to put that out there. So uh, thanks for being on Star Talk. We would totally want to have you back on again because if for no other reason, we'll find some reason to bring you back on because <laughs> you do fascinating work. Congratulations on your promotion to professor. Thank um, you, sir. And so uh, that means you're old and gray, I think. Is yes, what's yeah, it. Yeah, and as a pipe, you have to smoke. It's coming in. It's coming in. <laughs> 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 All right, Chuck, always good to have you. Always a pleasure. At, uh, tweeting at Chuck Nice Comic. Gary, tweeting at my three left feet. Is that it? Correct, yes. Yeah, and Chris, are you, do you have social media presence? Yeah, uh, just Mason underscore lab. Mason lab, yep. Um, Mason lab. All right, on Twitter, I guess that is. Yes, yes, sir. Is yeah, it? all right. We'll, we'll keep an eye on you. All right, everyone, this has been Star Talk Sports Edition. The right stuff. And uh, as always, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson bidding you to keep looking up. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.